Hello and welcome to Future SciChat. Every week on Future Chat, we sit down to talk about science and technology with a discussion centered on a new and exciting topic in one of those two fields. My name is Rob Trell, and I'm joined, as usual, by my cousin Mike. We're just a couple of science enthusiasts who love to learn and talk about the latest and greatest science and tech developments. I hope you're excited to join us today while we talk about space. Just a few of the topics we hope to cover this week are advances in rocket technology, the search for exoplanets orbiting nearby stars, and the possibility of finding life elsewhere in the galaxy anytime soon. Join us as we jump headlong into the future of science. There's a lot to talk about this week, so we'll get through as much as we can. Hey, let's Mike. Get to it. Yeah, hey. let's uh, yeah. let's go. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Rob? I am very good. This uh, I'm just gonna relax there. That was that was good. It was a lot. It was very official, and I just want to <laughs> just breathe and enjoy this. Space is fun. It is, and uh, there's actually way too much to talk about for one episode, but this is just sort of break the ice and introduce some of our favorite space topics. So as I mentioned, I think I want to start with advances in rocket technology just because I learned a bit about rocket technology recently when Elon Musk was on the Colbert Report. I hadn't really paid too much attention to... I'd heard that there were sort of there were civilians... Uh, not involved with NASA trying to get into space and just civilian spaceflight in general, but I didn't. I hadn't really been following specifics. And when I heard about the SpaceX project, I just thought, man, this is really, really cool. Um, have you heard much about SpaceX, or are you sort of on the same as me, where you saw, like, maybe you saw a video or something, but you don't know too much about it? When I when I first heard about SpaceX coming out, it was kind of a, a moonshot type project that everyone was like, well, that's kind of a cool idea. Um, but, you know, at the time, I guess it was unlikely or kind of out of people's scope of imagination at the time. Um, but I know recently I read something about SpaceX actually having already assisted NASA on a couple um, material delivery missions to the uh, space station. Um, and I know Richard Branson's involved in privatized space exploration as well. I don't know if he has a running program or if he's still in the development stage, but um, I know he's been involved in, in a couple of different things for that. Um, but yeah, you know, it's especially with the uh, the budget cuts that the U.S. has been doing for NASA, um, it's good to see, you know, other people stepping up and seeing the value in investing in that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so on that note, you mentioned a bunch of things that I'm really, really excited to talk about. I don't know if you were name-dropping them on purpose, because you have the same notes as me, but um, <laughs> yeah, Richard Branson's sort of Virgin uh, brand is Virgin Galactic. That's his um, shot into privatizing space uh, transport. But yeah, I, I haven't, again, read too much into what SpaceX has done with NASA, but I know that they've done some work getting people... I'm not sure if... I think it was, if not people, it was like delivering yeah. stuff to the ISS and bringing stuff back especially? Yeah, I think materials was the main... I didn't see anything mentioning people, but that's not to say they haven't, but I think it was mainly materials delivery and transport. Right. Now that NASA has basically... I think it's for the next two or three years they've, they're have they not doing any shuttle missions anymore. They're waiting, and there's a new um, space program that's starting up, I think in 2017 it was. Um, but until then, it's going to be either these private companies that they're paying to get stuff and possibly people up, or they're going to have to count on the Russians, 
with, who have their Soyuz capsule. Um, but yeah, Russian U.S. <laughs> relations are kind of tense right now, so that's probably a not little, something little. to depend on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, we'll talk about SpaceX here first because I think it's a really cool company, first of all, founded by Elon Musk, who did uh, PayPal, and he's also the CEO of Tesla Motors, which we've talked about when we did the electric cars episode. Uh, I think we're both pretty huge fans of, even just nerd fans of Elon Musk. <laughs> His donations to the Tesla Museum, uh, among many, many other things, like the Hyperloop, which is another really cool mm -hmm. idea he had. Um, so the the coolest sort of new thing about with SpaceX is their their newest rocket is actually capable of landing like it's not this is not a shuttle craft but the rocket itself is actually capable of taking off and landing vertically again on the like in a directed way on the same spot yeah. um, and basically the the interesting thing about space exploration if you can reuse your craft is that you don't have to have new material constantly if you can recycle the the rocket boosters especially suddenly you're not having to spend a bunch of money building new ones every time and if you're trying to land and take off on another planet for instance where you don't have resources and you don't have factories to make these things it suddenly makes the concept of going to another planet or or going to the moon a lot easier and definitely a lot cheaper so I was watching, they did a demo on, on the Colbert Report of the spacecraft that was actually, or the, the rocket, I guess, was actually capable. It took off and sort of hovered there straight up about, I don't know, 200, 300 feet off the ground, and then slowly, it, it looked like they were playing the video backwards. At first I thought it was a joke, um, and it just sort of balanced itself and then set back down on the oh. launch pad, which is just the craziest thing I can ever, I could ever think of. Does it have does it have like boosters or thrusters up at the nose to like keep it balanced? It's it must. I don't think it does. If it does, they they were very like it looked like a completely normal rocket. Hmm. Just firing like I I literally thought it was a joke. I thought that they were just playing it backwards to hmm. be like, ah, this is but uh he was saying something about gimbals and they just adjust the thrust based like to keep it balanced, but there's their computers tracking sort of any imbalances and making sure it stays yeah. stable. Well, like a gyroscope would do, kind of. Like yeah. it senses what has to compensate which way and that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Um, so the other the other commercial space flight company is Virgin Galactic, which is paid for and sort of, I guess it's owned by Richard Branson. Uh, and so they have been, they've been working since 2008. They have... Uh, different ships that, and some people have said that maybe this, the, the current generation aren't actually entering space because it's suborbital flight. Mm. But they almost look, they, they're very futuristic looking spacecraft. Um, and I believe the technology that they use is a ship that, or a plane, I guess, is it's a more apt name, that takes up the spacecraft into, into sort of a higher uh, altitude. Mm -hmm. And then the ship can just easily launch from there as opposed to having to use a bunch of fuel to get a plant to launch something straight up mm -hmm. which is pretty cool um, and so they have been I'm, I'm just reading uh, a bit of the, the history of it here 
So they've sold 600 tickets apparently to by by last year to to fly Virgin Galactic and a bunch of celebrities, mm-hmm. including Stephen Hawking, have already signed up to go. Which I, like I would love that. Uh, it's a two-hour flight, and you get six minutes of weightlessness during the flight, mm-hmm. like while it while it reaches the top right. of the trajectory. Uh, I the the other sort of thing that probably mimics this pretty closely would be the, the NASA's Vomit Comet, which is a plane that basically flies in huge parabolic arcs. If you've ever seen people, uh, for instance, Kate Upton did a Sports Illustrated shoot, I think it was Sports Illustrated, where she was in this comet, and so they basically had, or this plane, they basically had 90 seconds of weightlessness in varying amounts. Like, mm-hmm. if, if you wanted to go, they would do a big arc and you get 90 seconds, and so they had a bunch of pictures of her weightless in a bathing suit. Um, but the Big Bang Theory also, when when they had one of the characters Howard going to space, he was on that plane. Yeah. So he again, they call it the Vomit Comet for a good reason. Um, the reason he looked sick is because he actually was very sick. <laughs> the feeling of being weightless. Um. That also brings me sort of into the next. Uh, I, I, was there anything you want to say about space exploration? Because I. Um, I'm, there, there are lots of other technologies that that can be used. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking in this case about getting out of Earth's strong gravity into orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are lots of technologies that would be used over longer journeys that wouldn't necessarily give you huge amounts of thrust, but would let you accelerate slowly over time to get to very high speeds, especially yeah. in space where there's no air resistance. Yeah. I, I think as far as privatized space travel, I think it's it's exciting for from a space tourism perspective and for the everyman to, if they choose to splurge on it, they can buy a ticket to be waitlist for six minutes. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of cool. But from a practical scientific research point of view, yeah, I think you're, you're going to have to go beyond, you know, kind of more, not gimmicky, but just not as practical, let's get into suborbit and let's get deep into space and see where we can go from there. Yeah. So the interesting thing about that is that they are somebody somewhere with money and pull in in government or whatever whatever red tape is required. Are they are planning to go to Mars. And they're planning on taking people to Mars. Hmm. Um and basically it's going to take several months on a, with our current rocket technology to get there. So what they did, I think this was either at the beginning of this year or the end of last year, it was about a six-month project. They had 10 or 12 people in isolation. They weren't allowed any contact with the outside world in a, in a confined spaceship-sized environment. Mm-hmm. And they were basically just asked to survive. And it was like the middle of the desert or something, wasn't it? Uh, I don't know if it needed to be the middle of the desert, but they weren't allowed out of the castle. Okay. It was to simulate the, the getting there and getting back. Mm-hmm. Just to see how people would cope with the small area. If people like humans are in their nature sort of annoying to one another sometimes mm-hmm. over long periods. Um, but it's my understanding that sometime in the next five to ten years, maybe, they will be recruiting people to go to Mars, basically. And I think the first generation will probably be sort of a proof of concept, and they'll they'll be really really trying to get them back just to show that they can. 
but eventually, if we're doing this space exploration, there are going to be people like on, in, like you'd see in Star Trek, that their life basically is in space. They're, they would leave not ever necessarily knowing, even if they got to old age, that they were going to come back. Hmm. Which I think is really cool, and I would absolutely, I think I've said it before on this show, I would absolutely volunteer for that. Yeah. But it's it's kind of terrifying to think about even even just going to Mars, which is a, like a super close celestial neighbor. Yeah, it's very terrifying to think yeah. about. Well, I remember watching the uh, the Apollo thirteen movie, um, and you know one of the things that was really cool that I thought was when they did their training exercises uh, in I guess it was Houston or maybe it was Florida. I can't remember where they were. It was probably Houston. Probably Houston. Um, and they were like in the little training module and going through exercises of failures of this and that and seeing if you could get in time before your oxygen ran out and all this kind of stuff. And you had to prove that you could do it there in order to have confidence that you could potentially do it when you're actually out in space. So it's cool to see that they're at that stage where they're testing, um, you know, their their capsule sizes and that kind of thing just to kind of prove it out and, you know, if anything, just show that it can and should be done, I guess. Yeah, it's... It's funny that you say that. Like, I, I feel the same way growing up in this generation. But I'm also, when you were talking about watching the movie, I was acutely aware that that in the '60s this was actually happening. Right. <laughs> it would have been like so much more time. dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> you're worried about like when you're watching the movie, you're thinking, "Oh man, I know they're going to get back, but how are they going to do it?" Yeah. But in real life, people were actually out there. Yeah. Um, to the point that. I think for every space flight, they actually have one of the script, or I guess it's not a script writer, but the, one of the writers for the White House draft letters just in case something goes wrong, just to, to tell the people of the U.S., like, we lost them, there was a malfunction or something, and it was it, it's very possible to get stranded out there. Yeah. And there's really nothing, like, space is really unforgiving. You wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't have time to send another spacecraft up to get them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, during the space race in the 60s, it was, it, it's really amazing how far we came going from not having any space technology, not sending anything, nothing ever having breached space to bit like going around the moon like they did or landing on the moon. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's quite fascinating that it took a, basically an arms race to, to do that. And it's, I think it's important to note that the reason... Or at least one of the reasons that it's that it sort of slowed down and NASA's budget has sh- continued. I don't know if it's shrunk, but it's um, they had to. It got to the point where they had to cut funding for the space shuttle program. But um, it takes sort of a conflict. It takes a competition to get people actually riled up enough to want them to fund space mm-hmm. exploration. Even though there there are a bunch of technologies. All, almost all of our advanced technologies have come from needing to get to space. And when you think that they did that in the 60s, basically with just a, a computer that's hundreds if not thousands of times less powerful than one, any old yeah. phone that we have well, in our pocket Thousands today. of times bigger that took up an entire room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they were still able to do it. And yeah. all these controls are manual and things had to be... Every, every little thing had to be physically done as opposed to having it automated and taken yeah. care of by a computer. It's really quite amazing. Yeah. Well, now we have, you know, 
like SolidWorks and other simulation software and all these types of you know new mathematical approximations and all this kind of stuff that can crunch numbers and, and give us that much more confidence and that much more insight into what we can do than what we had yeah back in the 60s when they were first doing it so yeah I think if, if we don't try to do it now I think it's a waste yeah I, I absolutely agree with you um, that and that'll bring me to uh, before we get into the next topic I think I just wanted to raise this question with you to 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 get your take on it. Uh, is should we be spending money on space exploration? In your opinion, um, just mentioning that right now, about half a cent out of every dollar the U.S. spends, the U.S. government spends, is goes to NASA. Mm -hmm. um, whereas something like twenty percent, between ten and twenty percent, goes to the U.S. military, uh, who are basically building. They, they've said that they're building for instance, Abrams tanks, that the U.S. military does not want. But it would look bad politically if they were firing people in these tank factories and so they don't do it. Like they, The tank factories are, are in battleground states and mm -hmm. districts where if they started losing jobs because of that, it would be political suicide. But they don't need the tanks. <laughs> they just mm -hmm. don't. Yeah. Well, like you said, so much has arisen out of research into going to space and being in space that I think you really have nothing to lose. Um, I've heard multiple quotations on the return on investment for science, and it's been, you know, above and beyond multiple things that the government already spends money on. Um, you know, the Canadian government's having its own issues with science uh, investment and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think I think it takes an awareness in government and the right people in government to encourage that kind of spending and to kind of say, okay, yeah, like it might not be, you know, as immediately uh, obvious to the payoffs or the benefits of that kind of investment, but with with the right kind of mindset, you can you can see a lot of things that would come out of that. And yeah, for, for sure, I think it's worth investing that into not only going to space, but any sort of science science driven. Uh, endeavor. Yeah. And, and I mean, you can go on and on for years, probably, about the, it depends how slow you are, I guess, but about inventions from the U.S. space program that people take for granted now every day, that if they hadn't spent that research money on for NASA, we wouldn't have, uh, I'm just going to read this list of 10, apparently invisible braces are hmm like the ceramics that go into making them came from space research. Uh, Scratch-resistant lenses, which makes sense. Uh, the astronauts' visors need to, like, for instance, not fog up, not get scratches on them. That kind of stuff came from space research. Memory foam, obviously, uh, having this very light, dense foam that maintains its shape. Uh, is that an ear thermometer, apparently, because... <laughs> Mercury thermometers are hard to read, so they they did an infrared. They made an infrared thermometer. Uh, shoe insoles. Again, that's that's sort of the foam technology. Uh, telecommunications is a huge one. Like having the fact that we can that we have, I don't even know how many, but it's like tens of thousands of satellites orbiting the Earth at various heights. Uh, GPS is entirely based on um, NASA research. And the fact that we 
the fact that we have satellites up in space that are basically keeping in contact with one another down to the nanosecond and that that is what is keeping our GPS accurate just seems crazy to me. Uh, apparently cordless tools, which makes sense. Again, every time you think about this, you're like, yeah. About <laughs> that, like you can't, you like battery technology even, you, if you're in space, you wouldn't want there to be a cord tethering you. You'd want to be able to move around wherever you want. And you wouldn't want to have like 30 feet of cable just sort of floating around <laughs> uh, if you're trying to work on the other end of the ship. Water filters, that makes sense, trying to clean. Uh, like, so reuse the water. Right, reuse urine, for instance. Like a lot of the, the water that they drink has been refiltered, which, I mean, that sounds gross. <laughs> it even sounds gross to me, know it, like fully aware that it's 100% pure. But like, um, there have been, there's been life on this planet for billions of years. Uh, everything you drink has been pee yeah. at one time. Basically, there's no other way to say that. It's like when you're a kid and you're you're taught in elementary that you that you're drinking dinosaur pee. That's kind of yeah. I remember I remember hearing about that. And I'm like, oh, I guess that kind of makes sense in this yeah. on the end groups, but. It's it's funny because it's dinosaurs, so you're like, oh yeah, dinosaurs yeah. peed in this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there there's the whole thing is like just with the huge number of molecules, uh, in for instance a glass of water, it's it's probably not necessarily a lot, but you're drinking a statistically not zero amount of like water Abraham Lincoln drank <laughs> when he was alive and it's just like it's crazy to think about that but it's if you understand sort of what goes into it it makes so much sense that yeah. there's no way around that um, so let's get to sort of the larger scale of space exploration uh, I want to talk about exoplanets and how when we first started looking, when we first started discovering planets, it was kind of slow, and we found the big ones that are close to us. I'm talking about things like Saturn and Neptune and Uranus, and at first Pluto, although it is still technically a planet, it's just a dwarf planet. Dwarf planet. <laughs> um, it's, it's crazy that we used to think we were like, oh, our, our sun is somehow unique, and we have planets, but we couldn't see any other planets or, or any other planets around other stars. But now that we're getting telescope technology that is actually strong enough to do that, suddenly they're literally everywhere to the point that we are now convinced that it's there's almost like a 50-50 chance of having a planet that's the size of Earth and around the distance that Earth is mm -hmm. from our sun around every star, and there are, there are literally 10 to the power of 22 stars on the low mm -hmm. end of the estimate in our universe. Uh, so, and that that leads pretty well into, you've done some research onto what's called the Drake Equation. Uh, so I'll let you handle maybe explaining a bit about what the Drake Equation is and what goes into it. Okay. Um, so the Drake Equation is named after Frank Drake. He was a uh, radio astronomer um, back in the 60s. Um, and at the time, they were looking for ways to detect extraterrestrial life. And, you know, you have to start somewhere. So they're like, okay, let's let's start just 
sweeping for sweeping for a signal at a specific frequency, and they picked 21 centimeters as their their frequency of choice in and around there. Um, and I guess their reasoning was that's the the natural uh, radio frequency emission of neutral hydrogen, um, which being the most common element in the universe. They're like, oh, I guess aliens would know that too, and they'll emit at that frequency if they're trying to communicate. Um, so they did that for about six months, and it didn't work. So <laughs> he's like, oh, I guess this is harder than we thought, maybe. So he started thinking about all the different things that you'd have to consider and thinking about how hard it might be to detect um, intelligent life. And uh, he came up with, you know, about six things. And he said, hey, let's multiply these together, and that gives us a number. And we'll call that number the po the probability or the number of planets that have detectable intelligent life. Um, so it's seven terms, um, all various types of fractions and stuff. Um, some of the things that go into it would be the rate of star formation and then the fraction of stars with planets and then the number of planets that can support life and then the number of planets that support intelligent or that actually develop life and then the number of planets that, that have life that develop intelligent life and then the number of intelligent life civilizations that that are able to emit a signal that we can detect, and then the length of time that that signal is actually emitted. So it's kind of a progressive probability per se, kind of like okay, well you need you need the actual star with planets and planets that have life and the life that da, 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 da. so you come up with a number of fractions and then you get a number. Um, and he felt that that was solid enough to give us an actual idea of what uh what we're dealing with, I guess. Um, so that's that's the equation itself. Um, and there have been multiple uh, criticisms of the equation, to say the least. Well, is, is it really <laughs> criticisms, or are there just are they sort of coming up with maybe shortcomings of it, or saying that it's not it's not necessarily one hundred percent accurate? I think it's more like it shouldn't be taken as an actual calculation. It's more of a thought experiment for to get an get get an idea of what we need to consider. It's not meant to say, okay, let's add up all these factors and you get your your number. One of the primary, but not the only reasons, being that a lot of the terms in there, such as the fractional plants that could support life, that actually develop life. How are we ever supposed to know that? Like we don't we don't have any numbers to work with. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the equation because we'd already know what how many plants there are out there that, that have intelligent life. Right. Um, and there's not really any way. I mean, at at some point, it will be possible to explicitly calculate the Drake equation. Um, right now, for instance, we know the average rate of star formation in our galaxy. Mm -hmm. Observed it. Yeah. We we are starting to get a feeling of the fraction of the stars that have planets. Um, as well as the number of planets that can potentially support life. Inhabitable zone. Yeah, but we have absolutely no idea of the fraction of no. planets that actually do support life. Mm -hmm. we, we don't know anything about how life, or how likely it is that life becomes intelligent. All we know is that from our experience, our planet has a 100% success rate. But that's not super helpful in the grand scheme of things. Right. <laughs> very, very limited. Yeah. And one of the most the, the most interesting thing to me is the the last term, which is the length of time that civilizations actually release signals that you can detect mm -hmm. in space. And that's 
Not necessarily, because I think as long as humans have eyes, we're going to be sending light into space, visible light. But they're referring specifically more to things like microwaves, radio yeah. waves. Uh, and that has only been maybe in the last 70 years, 70 or 80 years. I think the first, um, the first television broadcast they said was the intro or the opening ceremonies of the 1936 Olympics. I know, I know there was radio before that, but that was the first sort of visual thing uh, that was actually broadcast in the over the air. And so it it's interesting. Again, you mentioned as a thought experiment, but it's not really something that right now we're going to have any chance of ever calculating. Mm-hmm. Because there's just too many unknowns. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you're talking about, you know, the number of planets that are emitting the signal in the frequency we're listening for and in the way that we're expecting it to come. And we're assuming that they're actually trying to contact us. Like, us as a civilization, we're not emitting signals intentionally in all directions in a number of frequencies. It's like if someone happens to hear us and they tune into like a broadcast of Simpsons, then they're like, oh, there's life down there, I guess. But I, I don't know what they'd pick up otherwise. Like, you know, unless there's, I'm sure there's some agencies, you know, the UFO guys that are, you know, sending out radio frequencies and shooting it out into space. But that's not going to help in the grand scheme of things, I don't think. All right. Like, th- there's a scene, and I haven't actually seen this movie, so this is going to be very uninformed description, but there's a scene in Independence Day where an alien civilization is is trying to take over Earth, and Jeff Goldblum gets his MacBook, opens it up, and, ty- like, programs a virus that he sends to the alien mothership, and it deactivates it. It, like it, it crashes their whatever computer system they have. And the idea that it, that sort of makes it sound like, oh, well, of course, if we're broadcasting, for instance, an episode of The Simpsons, any planet that's in listening range is going to see The Simpsons if they just tune their antennas to the right <laughs> But that's not necessarily going to happen. Right. They're certainly not going to be running... This, they're almost 99.999% likely to not be tuned to those frequencies and not have those antennas set up. Even if they are intelligent, they might not necessarily be at that point. Yeah. Or they might be way further ahead. Right. It, well, exactly. And there, there's a, there's a really interesting, I'm going to put, I'll put a link to the, to this article that I um, found really interesting sort of talking about the scale of the universe and, and, mentions the Drake equation and gives a bit of explanation. Um, but it says that one possibility is that there are civili- civilizations that are so advanced that we might not even matter to them. They might see us and just not like basically not even notice that we're there. Uh, similar to the way that if we're driving down the highway, there's an ant on the side of the road, but we don't care about that ant. Mm-hmm not like, oh, look, there's an ant, and let's go try to talk to it, because it, it's, it's, it's <laughs> never going to happen. And yeah. There's a possibility that another civilization could be like, we could be the ant to them. Yeah. It's just they're on a, such a higher plane that there's no point in even yeah. noticing them. Yeah. Well, look at, look at the uh, Man of Steel movie, and how, and I haven't read the comic books or anything, so I don't know the accuracy of the actual story itself, but 
how, you know, Superman's, you know, Krypton, the planet they saw Earth and like, oh, that's a good place to recall. And I was let's go take over that. Like, it's like, we, it wasn't like, oh, look at that intelligent life. It's like, oh, let's go, like, use that. And then they just come and just, they, they saw there was life and it's like, oh, but, you know, they didn't see our technology and was like, oh, that's really cool. And like, oh, let's, like, work together. It's like, oh, that is some usable space. Like, yeah. that's kind of what they saw us as. And hopefully we're not the ones being recolonized as opposed to us colonizing somewhere else. Right. And it's all too easy to see humanity going to other planets, mm-hmm. seeing that kind of less formidable life and just going, oh, paving over it. It's, it wasn't even there. Um, we've been doing that, for instance, in places like the rainforest uh, in South America, and it's kind of too bad for that. It's just sort of, oh, too bad for that life. It wasn't strong enough to sustain itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, I can definitely see that happening on other planets if we do end up colonizing them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that brings me to another discussion question for you. Maybe get your opinion on it. Do we as humans want to find intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? Like, do you, for instance, and maybe try to imagine larger than yourself as well? Uh, but I want both. <laughs> I, I think I'd be... It'd be really cool to find out there was what we see as intelligent life. I, and I think that's a big caveat, too. It's like, well what's to say what's intelligent life, like, that's similar to us, or that operates on a level that's just beyond our recognition of something that's intelligent, but in reality, it's, they're capable of doing things more than we can, like, I don't know, but I think it'd be cool to be around if and when we do make some sort of contact with uh, a life other than our own. Um, But I, I think as a civilization, I don't think... I wouldn't say it's a priority, I don't think, because I think it opens up a whole nother can of worms, so to speak, as far as making ourselves vulnerable to an unknown civilization that, say, we go and intentionally make contact as they see us as a threat or as vulnerable, then that might spell the end for us, um, and or we might find that we're not as big and powerful as we thought we were. Um, but I think for a human curiosity standpoint, I think we do want to. But I think that balancing of should we end, what are the consequences if we do? Right. That's So you would be up for finding it, mm-hmm. but whether or not it's a good idea for society as a whole, maybe it's not super important Right. To us. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree. I think that if we found a small sign of life, especially on a planet nearby, it would whip everybody back up into sort of a, a fervor about is there intelligent life elsewhere, if we found any life at all. Mm-hmm. I think that it would be really hard to get the public in general to not want to go f- know more about it. Mm-hmm. I think right now the light that is being seen in is if we find intelligent life or just life somewhere else, 
then that means that it might be able to sustain us. And I think that's the approach that we're taking right now. And honestly, I think that is the best approach if you're looking at a self-seeking um, mindset because, like, yeah, like, if you're looking out for yourself and you find life and it's like, oh, maybe we can use that if once we, you know, kind of put this through to crap. Right. <laughs> once we're done with it, I guess. Yeah. Um, so on that note because you brought it up this is a point that you had wanted to talk about but weren't sure how interesting it was going to be Um, maybe just comment briefly on what you think about recolonizing Um, for instance we're at 7 billion people on our planet right now and there's been I've heard some people say that we're fine and like wouldn't want to get a lot higher than we are at 7 billion but with the resources we have on our planet could, can sustain 7 billion people. Uh, and obviously it can because the population is still growing, but whether or not it can support more is another question. But do you think it's worth, for instance, trying to colonize Mars? And We'd obviously have to sort of terraform it in some way to be able to live there. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, your, your point being is, is it something that we're going to have to do eventually is try to find another planet that we can live on to colonize, to sustain humanity as a whole. Mm -hmm. I think just as, again, as humans, we're very short-sighted, and it's hard for us to think about what we as a race or as a civilization or society are going to do in, like, a thousand years' time. It's like, right now we're looking at, oh, we have, like, you know, all this energy in the ground and all this food and money and whatever, but it's like when we start talking about, well, what are we going to do when it runs out? It's like, well, that's, you know, that's future Earth's problem. Like, we're not, right? Like, it's not, it's not immediately relevant to us. So I think it's hard for us to even see it as an urgent need. Um, kind of like what you're talking about with the space race, right? Like, you don't, you don't put your efforts towards something unless there's an immediate threat or reason to pursue it. Um, so I think, yeah, I think, you know, on the scale of a thousand years, I think it is necessary to start looking at recolonization because the things on Earth aren't going to last forever. Um, but is it going to happen anytime soon? I don't think so because it's not an immediate priority. Right. Huh. It is, it's a very interesting thought, though. <laughs> so I have to ask, because I, I've answered this question would you go on a one-way space mission? Not by myself. (laughs) Would you be a part of a one-way space mission? Would I relocate my family and go live on Mars? Well, depends on what's there. Like, well, I mean, if you... Maybe you wouldn't go on the first plane or the first ship or whatever, but... Even like this is just conceivably conceivably thinking that it is possible at some point. Would you go? Would you personally want to go to an another planet, knowing that no matter how old you get, you're not coming back? Does that thought is it a curiosity to you? Does it appeal to you in any way, or is it sort of like, well, on a science fiction level, that'd be cool, but I'm not doing it. <laughs> if if I could bring if I could bring my family with me, then I would. I wouldn't go on my own. Yeah. <laughs> so in that sense, yeah, like I think on a on a science fiction level it would be cool, and I think in a reality level, if if it was like I can't 
it's it's hard to imagine a scenario in which that would even be possible, let alone something that someone would want to do. Like I'm thinking like a barren landscape where you have like a glass bubble that pumps oxygen into it, and I'm just like sitting there all day. No, I wouldn't want to do that. If there is like you know like houses and I don't know, not just darkness in the sky. Like ideally, there's an atmosphere that gives the sky some sort of color other than nighttime all the time or just blinding sun. Then. <laughs> Yeah. Like, it, right. It, it would depend on the living conditions. Like honestly, right. no. I, I wouldn't want to have crap living conditions if it meant I could be in space. I'd just be miserable. But if it could somewhat, not even simulate Earth, but be something appealing to us as humans, then yeah, that'd be cool. It's kind of like a the Giver type utopia that you could recreate. Right. Like if if Mars had a sustainable oxygen filled environment. Mm-hmm. Build, but with, with, with some light scattering that gave the sky color. Right. Well, the sky, <laughs> the sky in Mar- on Mars does have color. It's red, I've, isn't I've it? Seen some of their Mars pictures where it has. It's not like it's not pitch black all the time. Isn't it's it like not, blood red or orangey? Or the ground reflected? Yeah, but the sky is there's there is atmosphere. Maybe it's not. Thick, it's not. It's not blue. No, it's not blue. So it'd be so it'd be unfamiliar. It'd be like. Oh, so you want you want Earth too? I want some sort of familiarity. Like some sort of like, oh, this is weird. Like I, I don't know. Okay. I could get, I could get used to it if it was. I I, I'd have to look at the brochure. I'd have to look at the brochure first. If, <laughs> if you had to live there, if there was no other choice. Well, that's its own thing. Yeah, sure. of course. You'd adapt and. Yeah. Suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think at this point we'll go to your other point, which is the concept of harvesting minerals from asteroids. And uh, maybe you could introduce that topic and talk about it a little. Well, I I haven't looked too much into the actual current development or status of it. I've heard it mentioned a couple times when people talk about the sustainability of resources, especially when it comes to rare earth metals and that kind of thing. Um, And, you know, we're, we're getting to the point where we can start playing with our orbiting bodies and, you know, get them to where we need to. A lot of the talk has been when, you know, every so often you'll hear, oh, Earth's at threat of getting hit by this asteroid and whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, oh, no, it's actually, like, super far away. And if it was a threat, we'd know. Um, But then that brings up the the conversation of, well, what can we do anything with the asteroids that, you know, are around us? Um, and a lot of it is very kind of in the future, like, oh, well, we need this technology and that technology. But I think it's, to me, that's the most science fiction-y possible thing at this point, um, other than traveling to Mars type stuff because we've done it to, for the moon. But when you're looking at things that we haven't done yet, I think if we're able to kind of rope in uh, an orbiting body that we'd be able to use... Um, either as kind of like a base station to go from there to the space station kind of thing or to harvest minerals from that kind of thing. Uh, I think that's that's pretty exciting to be able to, to see that kind of thing. And even just a quick Google, you see companies that are actually already, you know, getting investors for asteroid mining and that kind of thing and trying to claim rights to asteroids and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. And it's... I've heard descriptions that it'll sort of be like the Wild West again. Mm-hmm. Like the gold rush, gold yeah, rush type thing. Yeah. Start going out there and you'll have fights in space with uh, 
over over different asteroids. Like you'll find an asteroid that's full of gold, and yeah. suddenly everyone will be rushing out to get it. Um, even though I mean, in turn, like jewelry, gold jewelry looks nice, but the the amount of gold we would need to like, for instance, plate our electronics so they don't corrode easily <laughs> isn't a ton. Yeah. Uh, but there ha there has been a lot of talk about asteroids and frankly every time I hear about it right with the current technology we have it's terrifying we, do, we don't know how to control I don't think we should be moving <laughs> if we're mining things on asteroids and coming back I think that's one thing but if we start using like the slight amount of gravity to start towing asteroids closer to earth <laughs> I just, it's I like it came too close everyone duck <laughs> Yes, we'll just duck as this yeah. meteor hits. Yeah. Um, yeah, your your point here is uh, lassoing uh, an asteroid yeah. or a meteor into what would you? I guess you'd call it. I guess it's an asteroid at that point. Yeah. It's not a meteor if it until it falls. Until <laughs> just, it hopefully, it doesn't become a meteor. <laughs> yeah, um, putting it in geostationary orbit. Uh, I don't know how. How uh, sort of geostationary the orbits actually are. I know that if you have a satellite, it has to keep boosting. Maybe if you set up a space station there that could process, like you'd send the asteroid to that space station that was there. That would make me feel more comfortable because geostationary orbit is actually pretty high up. Like it's, I think it's at least one extra Earth distance away. Like it's pretty far from from outer space, and then you have to go an extra Earth distance away? Yeah. Okay. Because, like, the ISS orbits, they, they say that it orbits like the... If you consider Earth the size of an apple, it orbits at the height of the peel. Like, it's very, mm. very close. Mm. And that's why it has to travel at, like, 10,000 kilometers an hour. Mm. And it orbits the Earth every hour and a half. But geostationary orbits are quite a bit further out. So and you also mentioned in, in the description space elevators, which I think are a really interesting concept. In theory, again, <laughs> it, would, it would have to be a super controlled elevator because my thought, again, is just you trap this asteroid in geostationary orbit and then you start, like, breaking it apart and just... It, it, I basically picture it just dropping through a tube <laughs> and then hitting the Earth at supersonic speeds. Um, but obviously there would be, there'd be more of a controlled mechanism in that. There's, that sort of makes me think about the concept. I don't know if you've heard about the... I'm sure you've heard about it. The concept of a Dyson sphere. Basically, the... And that's that's one of the, the things that brings you into a new stage of civilization is right now we use quite a bit of energy that the sun gives us. But if we install something called a Dyson sphere, it's basically some way of harvesting all the energy from our sun. So basically some kind of sphere with photovoltaic cells that would basically encircle the entire sun. And so we would be getting either solar energy or chemical energy or whatever kind of energy from this giant radius. And that would be more than enough to sustain a, a civilization of any size. And if you could do something like that, than a space elevator to transport that energy and, and other um, things like that would be basically trivial. You'd be, you have this giant 
nuclear furnace that you would be getting all the energy from it and there, there would just be no need for any other you wouldn't need to burn anything to get energy because you'd have all this uh, these, yeah. Yeah, the, the amount of energy that the, the fraction of the energy the sun gives off that comes to earth that we use is way less than a thousandth of a percent of the total energy it gives off how would you like distribute that energy though it's kind of the solar roadways yeah, you have a grid, and, and it would all feed into just an earthly grid. That well, it, I mean, in this scenario, it, this is obviously way bigger than Earth. If we're trapping all of the energy from the sun, mm -hmm. or at least I, I, I don't know if there's a way to. So you have like substations on each planet. No, I, I don't know exactly. I, like I've seen, sort of, it, it would almost be like a giant mesh that would just be the radius of our orbiter a bit bigger and anything that is outside like you could almost have you could almost have miners that are on the outside of the sphere that any asteroid that comes into that circle would be hit would obviously hit the sphere but you'd trap it and then you'd send the materials down uh, it's it's this is pretty far into the future talking about trying to harvest all of the energy, but it's really cool, and maybe do a bit of research into yeah. Dyson Spheres, because I think it was uh, I want to say his name was Frank Dyson, but that seems too convenient that I remember <laughs> it that well. Um, it's definitely not the vacuum guy, though. <laughs> Although the concepts are similar, it's not him. Uh, but it is a very cool concept. The, the ability to use all the energy and basic like that we we've, we've talked in the alternative energy episode about how if you had a few kilometers squared of solar panels that were fairly efficient in the middle of a desert you would have enough electricity so to supply the entire world with power mm -hmm. but then it's getting it to those places that's the whole thing i don't but think it is cuz it is it's it's that's the hurdle that's like what what you have to go to is like what are but you going to do with all that energy you have? You have power cables. You have that run under have. the ocean. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't have to. It wouldn't have to be. It would actually be kind of a nuisance to have it all in, for instance, Africa, because at that point, when it's night in Africa, you're not generating any energy. Mm -hmm. You want to have it distributed so that you're getting power through the day. But you just invented solar farms. But that I'm saying that. The, the amount, it, like, it wouldn't take a lot. I mean, for one person to think about it, it would take a lot. It would be, like, kilometers of farms. But in terms of the entire size of the Earth, it's nothing. It's 0% of the Earth's surface overall that would need to be, have solar panels on it. Mm -hmm. And you'd have enough electricity. And so you'd, you'd, if you had a, a solar power station or several in North America, that would be all the power from North America. Which isn't too far off. Maybe a couple of orders of magnitude fewer, but mm -hmm. like right now we have centralized power stations. We like there's no power plant in Ottawa that is giving me electricity. It's it's coming from somewhere else. It's coming from yeah. probably elsewhere in Ontario, but But it's not traveling hundreds of kilometers. In some cases I'm sure it is. Well because Again, going back to the solar roadway thing, there's there's a number that was quoted about how the energy 
dissipation as it travels is, is fairly high. And that's why they have to step it up every how often even then. Like, it's, it's, it's a fairly big consideration. It, it's one of those things where, well, if it, was, if it was that possible, then it would have already been done. But it, it, you'd have to have, if you can isolate, or insulate, I guess, the wires better. That's a big whatever, if. <laughs> yes, it would require higher temperature superconductors than we have right now. But that's basically what the concept is. Mm-hmm. And I would have to think, as a chemist, as someone who's learned all about the history of of our materials discoveries, they're just accelerating. Like we've we have things like graphene and nanotubes and we have materials that have been discovered that have these properties and it's just a matter of scaling them up. Like mm-hmm. we have done over the years with all other all other kinds of materials that we're using. Yeah. So it's just a matter of yeah. of sort of fleshing out the technology, but it's there. It's possible to do. We just have to keep working at it. I, I think even beyond or more relevant than space exploration and recolonization is if you look at the alternative energy side of things, and you're, we're kind of going off topic with that, but we've already talked about it before where, you know, I think if we're looking at alternative energy, it's not going to become a priority until we don't have any other option or we're, it's more immediate than what it is now. Right. I guess so. But I, I, I'd like to think at least that at some point that's going to happen. We're going to cross mm-hmm. that threshold and yeah. either want or need that technology. I agree. I'm really excited. <laughs> that being said, I think that's a good place to stop. We're at almost an hour now. Um, I don't know if you remember when we first started, we were talking about doing like 40 minutes, but it's yeah. been <laughs> over an hour or more. Pretty consistently. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add? I think that's a pretty good uh, overview of just a small taste of space and what a, the excitement it has to offer. Um, we'll definitely be talking about space as we move along and focus on some other some other topics specific to to space exploration or recolonization yeah. that kind of thing. But I think it's it's a good intro and good discussion. Yeah. Um, if people who are watching are interested in getting excited about space, go and Google Chris Hadfield because <laughs> he is he's really cool. He an astronaut just got back from I think it was like six months in space yeah. on the. International Space Station. He made a bunch of videos. He even made a David Bowie cover on the space station. Um, but he did a bunch of experiments. Just sort of like he would take questions from school children or, or even adults, and just like, what would happen if you did this in space? And he would do it, and it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, so once again, I'll say it as we're closing out. Go uh, subscribe to us on YouTube if you enjoyed this, and we'll keep bringing it to you. Uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on what we should do next week for tech? Uh, I don't know. I'll have to I, think about it a bit more. We have to do music at some point. I just yeah. there's so much to do. Maybe yeah. maybe we'll do that. But we'll and see. video games too. We'll have to do video oh yes, games. video games. Yeah. The discussion that I will moderate and nothing else because I can go <laughs> It is a very good topic though because again, yeah. improvements in video game consoles have led to a bunch of advancements in computer technology. Yeah. But uh, military yeah. technology too. That's 
yes, flying drones, for instance. That's yeah. uh, it. Also led to a generation that's very good at flying drones, <laughs> <laughs> using controllers to man things for a long time. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So subscribe to the channel if you enjoyed this, and we do it every week. We are on Facebook and Twitter, and go find us. And uh, other than that, I'll see you next week. All right. Thanks, Rob. See you, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Bye.